0: You mean that smoke? Ah. It's okay. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) It's perfectly harm. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yes? No, the rocket has a name. What's the name? It's on the blueprint. Apostle (laughs) 13. You're making this awfully hard for me to follow all this. Oh, my goodness. Well, in all these little ones, and all the not-so-little ones, and all the old ones. Everybody comes to the Lord God Almighty the same way, and that is by God's grace through faith. Somebody said, and honestly it was kind of funny, I try to uh, document whenever I quote somebody, but this quote was attributed to like 19 different people, so (laughs) who knows? But whoever it was said, we are only ever one generation away from the extinction of the church. And here at Faith Evangelical Free Church, we are mindful of the fact that that is our responsibility. And in fact, it is every Christ follower's responsibility to be part and parcel of raising up that next generation, the next generation of faith. It is by God's grace that everybody is saved by faith. Now, what I'm going to say may surprise you in a couple different ways as we go along here, but the word faith itself occurs about 250 times in the scriptures from the Old Testament into the New Testament. But 246 of those occurrences occur in the New Testament. Meaning there's only four times in the Old Testament that the word faith is there, and actually of those four, Only one is actually in the context of what we were talking about today concerning faith. And that particular instance comes from the prophet with the funny name. Actually, a lot of the prophets have funny names, especially Joel. No, um, the prophet, some say Habakkuk, some say Habakkuk. I use them interchangeably. But the prophet Habakkuk wrote 600 years before the coming of the New Testament and what he wrote was, what I'm going to read is an excerpt what precedes the Babylonian deportation, as it's called. That is, God was, was uh, upset with his children, his people Israel, and so in loving discipline to get their attention once and for all, he was taking them out of their place of relative comfort and into a foreign land where they would live for 40 years, and that was Babylon. So this comes now as a result of a vision that God gives Habakkuk concerning that. Now remember, I want you to understand this is 600 years before the birth of Christ. This is what Habakkuk writes. The Lord answered me and said, "Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, so that the one who reads it may run with it." Meaning will take it and disseminate it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, that is, though it delays, it may seem to you like it's never going to arrive, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. Now here it is. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. The singular occurrence in the Old Testament saying six centuries ahead of time, and actually these are only excerpts and snippets, the whole idea of the fact that we would gain our acceptance before a holy God and what he was doing to prepare for that comes as early as the book of Genesis. But I am condensing things greatly this morning. Now, as I said, the remaining 236 occurrences of faith – are all then in the New Testament. Now, the importance of why I'm saying all this is that we don't want to be fooled by that, believing, as some have been taught, that the Old Testament was a system of forgiveness that was based on human effort. And what I'm referring there to is the, the numerous and the multitudinous and incessant religious rituals that God gave his people to keep An angry God, angry why? Angry for the humankind's rebellion to keep God at arm's length. I was putting it somewhat in a crass manner, but that's kind of the nutshell of it. And so the popular way that it goes is that it's not until we get into the New Testament where Jesus is born when all of a sudden somehow things mysteriously change to where mankind is now forgiven by that angry God of the Old Testament who apparently must have gone und- undergone some kind of therapy or something to get rid of his pent-up anger. Well, okay, so what? Well, it would be easy to take the one-time occurrence of that word faith that's mentioned in the Old Testament compared to the 236 mentions of it in the New Testament and draw conclusions supporting that very idea that the God of the Old Testament was an angry, vindictive God, but the God of the New Testament is a loving, compassionate, gentle God. But know that while the word faith is used only that one time in the Old Testament, The Old Testament drips with a doctrine of living by faith in God Almighty, even without using the word. So let's consider the oldest book of the Bible. And your heads probably run to the book of Genesis because it appears as the first book of the Bible. But that's not the oldest book in the Bible by way of chronology or occurrence. Actually, the book of Job that in the way the Bible is laid out comes way, way, way later in the Old Testament. Well, not way later, but some later, quite a bit later. And so what we find when we come to that book of Job is an absolutely clear, if not stunning, proclamation of faith from the lips of Job. The word isn't used. But it is clearly the message that comes forth. From Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, here's what Job writes. Now, this is at the point in his life where he has come through all kinds of calamity, tragedy, personal loss, unjust accusations, rejection by his friends, loss of loved ones, all of that. And here's what he declares at the end of it all. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. And his response is, my heart faints within me. Just thinking about the grace and the mercy of the love of God way back in the Old Testament. Now, if we didn't know that this passage was from the oldest book in the Bible, and I said, okay, I'm going to give you this passage now, find it for me, wouldn't you start looking for it or expect to find it in the New Testament after Jesus had come into the world, after he had lived, died, and rose again? And in fact, Habakkuk's words I quoted earlier about the righteous living by faith is quoted three different times in the New Testament, now, allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible, which is the only proper way of understanding the Scriptures, the New Testament refers to many Old Testament characters underscoring their faithfulness, albeit in an Old Testament context. And the greatest consolidation of this occurs in the book that's called Hebrews, toward the latter part of the New Testament. Listed in the book of Hebrews are 11 historical individuals singled out by name and are highlighted as people who in an exemplary manner lived by faith, believing God, trusting God, and loving God. Not out of fear, but out of thankfulness realizing their eternal destiny was not resting on their striving for approval by God Almighty. And if there is a single person emerging for his notoriety throughout the pages of the Old Testament and then even into the New Testament, Abraham is the man. And he is mentioned 74 times in the New Testament, this Old Testament individual. And Abraham, who is readily considered the patriarch of all patriarchs, is even nicknamed the father of faith. Many people today have a major hiccup, though, when it comes to faith. I can't tell you seriously how many times in trying to engage individuals in quasi-intellectual conversation about spiritual things, that in the end it comes down to that, oh, that faith stuff, you know. To them, faith is, is mythology. Faith is fantasy. Faith is, is what somebody's concocted or what you, you cling to blindly with without any sense of evidence or reality. So what I like to do in these situations is play a little game called... Welcome to reality. My contention is that everybody lives by faith. Here it is. Faith, in the broadest sense, is predominant in everyone's life, not just the religious. Meaning that even the true atheist... And a lot of people call themselves an atheist, and they don't even know exactly what that means. They mean, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I know and it just sounds kind of pseudo-intellectual. But the true atheist, who has at some level examined and somehow have come to the conclusion that categorically there just is no God. And so they proclaim that, yeah, this faith stuff and everything else is not for them. They live only by certainty only by what they can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell. And yet I contend, as I will demonstrate, that they actually live by faith every single day. And they can't even fathom that life apart from faith would be quite unlivable. So let's think about faith in the reality of every day. All of us got up this morning. Wow, you might want to note that down. That is a profound statement. Now, let me ask you, Now, all my questions, if I say let me ask you or whatever, they're all purely rhetorical, so just answer it yourself if you want to. When you went to bed last night, did you sit there wringing your hands thinking, boy, I I don't want to close my eyes. If I close my eyes, I may not wake up. There may be some (laughs) that fall into that category. I feel sorry for them. But the vast majority of the human race goes to bed each night, certainly here in America. We go to bed each night with the certainty, with the faith, without thinking in those terms, but with the, because remember, we're talking about religious and non religious people. They go to bed believing in faith that they will wake up in the morning. And then they get up and they go downstairs to start making breakfast, perhaps, and they walk over to their stove, be it electric or. Gas, and they don't sit there wondering. Oh boy, hmm. Okay, let's see. CMP. I know that their function is, and they provide the electricity box. And the... no, they wake up, they walk over to the store without thinking about it. Why? Because they have faith that when they go and turn on that stove, that the burners are going to start to heat up. Unless you live in Vassalboro, that seems to lose their power just incessantly. And if you happen to have a gas stove, you've exercised faith without even knowing it, that either you or your spouse paid the, the you know, the bill to get the tank filled, and, and you're all set on that too and, and everything else. You don't think about these things, and you don't even think about the fact that, yeah, I really am exercising faith, but that is exactly just what it is. So then you go into the refrigerator, and you pull out a dozen eggs, and you start cracking your eggs in the pan. You don't sit there and say to yourself, boy, I know, you know, you can get salmonella from eggs. Nope, we go in there, we take it out, we assume that that agencies that are the watchdogs of those kinds of things have done their job, that the people raising the chickens have done their job and due diligence and everything else so that, that we don't even think about the fact that, yeah, I could get sick from this and I could even die if it happens to be tainted. We live by faith that all that was done in the background and therefore it's safe and it's just a presumption. We grab the jam out of the cupboard. We open the new jar of jam and it goes... Because the seal is broken, it was vacuum. We don't sit there and think through the, 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 the physics of what's called single-hit kinetics and how bacteria is killed in the sterilization process of the jam. That's all for the FDA to worry about and for Mrs. Welch to worry about and Mrs. Smuckers and all that. And we, we believe in faith that they have done what they are supposed to do. And so I don't need to think, even think about these things and we do that. Now it's time to leave the house and you go. <laughs> this may not be quite true for some of us. And you grab your key and you go out to the car. And you exercise faith believing that when you get in that car, because boy, you are cutting it close, you're going to stick the key and turn it, and that car is going to start. That wasn't true for me for many years in my younger days. <laughs> We exercise faith in all kinds of ways, and then you finally leave your driveway, and you're driving down the road, and your light is green, and you just drive right through that light, exercising faith that if there is anyone in the oncoming direction, they are going to see their light, and by faith, I believe that they are going to obey the traffic law, and they are going to come to a stop, and we could go on. And on with this. So, no matter how scientific or rational you think you are, everyone lives by faith. They just don't know it or they just don't want to admit it. Dr. Jim Groff, biochemistry professor of mine at Georgia State University. One day he's at the board. He's explaining what is called Michaelis-Menten kinetics, which has to do with uh, how enzymes in our bodies speed up the rate of kinetic enhancement in reactions that take place that are vital to life. And he had this this chalk <laughs> on a board, and uh, or was it slate? In a, <laughs> yeah, anyway. And he, he was putting these equations up there, and he's explaining how it went from here to here to here to here to here. And it was all perfectly rational, perfectly scientific, perfectly uh, um, consistent with everything that he's saying until he came to the very last part of that slope. And there just seemed to be this hole between this step and this step. And I went, and I said, I have followed this all the way through here. I said, but how do you get from this step to this step? And he turned and he went, magic, <laughs> honest to goodness. And I, I sat there, I was, a, I was a young believer and a new believer, and I thought, yeah, everyone lives by faith, whether they know it or not. So now one of my favorite uh, remembrances of my engagements with people in the workplace or on campuses or what have you, I'm at a a college in a cafeteria, and I walk over and I start to, uh, I think uh, I might have noticed the textbook that uh, the young lady was reading, and it was of a scientific nature, and so I sat down and I started trying to engage her about faith and all of that. And just about the first thing, at least in my remembrance, that came out of her mouth was telling me how, yeah, yeah, all that faith stuff, blah, blah, because she's here, this is a community college, she's here because she has a scientific mind. And she only believes, you know, again, taste, touch, feel, see, hear, objective, reality, truth, you know, not this fantasy of faith and everything else. And as soon as she said that, there was glee in my heart. (laughs) And I said, that I am so glad that you have a scientific mind. I said, because so do I. And I said, in fact, my second degree was in medical technology. Okay. And I said, all laboratory and immunohematology was my specialty. So I said, yeah, I totally appreciate the whole idea of, of, of analyzing the evidence and coming out with conclusions that are based on the evidence and the data that you have before you. So I said to her, and I'm condensing this as well, I said, so what? Evidence led you to conclude that there is no God. She said something along the lines of, and I don't remember exactly, but it was like, I just believe that or whatever. And I said, so what you're saying is, is that I have faith in the existence of God and you have faith in the non-existence of God. So once we got that little tidbit off the table, okay, then we could proceed on a what I would consider a more rational basis. Did I make any progress with her? Not that I know of. But again, those kinds of things are in the hands of the Lord. Everyone lives by faith. Now, Admittedly, going back to all those scenarios I mentioned about getting up in the morning and living by faith, being wrong about your faith in the milk being okay when it was actually spoiled, right? the consequences of that is that you're going to have to dump out your tea or your coffee or what have you, unless you like cottage cheese in your coffee. Okay, But now we're talking about things of an eternal nature, not just of a wasted cup of coffee. God gives us all kinds of reasons and evidence to believe. God does. And in fact, he writes in this book, 1 John, which is way at the back of the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that is, that have faith in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope or that along with that, and then what you contribute to the whole thing. But no, I've written these things so that you can know with certainty that there is eternal life available to you through me. So here's my question. Are you willing to stake your eternal life, not just your life, But are you willing, if you are a skeptic or a flat-out unbeliever, are you willing to stake your eternal life on your hunch that the conclusions that you have drawn about heaven and hell and about God and no God and everything else in between are correct? God gives us all kinds of reasons. And what I want to talk about now is, first, the bad news to the whole picture The bad news as the apostle Paul summarizes very succinctly in Romans chapter 3:23 says that all all doesn't mean most, it doesn't mean many. It's not exclusive to geographical locale or to religious systems or anything else. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paraphrasing that with accuracy is that nobody is good enough to ever, to ever get into heaven with God Almighty. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then again in chapter 3, he writes to the same people, there are none who are righteous. There's not even a single one. There's not even one. So what's the bigger picture here? Well, the bigger picture is that sin entered the world at the outset of humanity. And so then we go back to the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis, to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They decided to do what they felt and thought and saw and perceived was right instead of what God told them was right. And at that moment, these two uh, individuals who were the prototypes of all human beings to come. They were the only two that came into this world sin-free. But when they rebelled against God, they both now had sin upon them, and that sin then was communicated, translated, through their genes, if you will, to everybody who's ever come in to being. Back to the Old Testament concerning this idea of faith. And as I said, God all along the way is putting up billboards and letting people know that he has a better plan than all the systems of the Old Testament and the rigorous rituals and, and uh, all these sacrifices and offerings that had to be made. He writes through the through the prophet Isaiah that all we like sheep have gone astray. And each of us has turned to his own way. That's the bad news. But the good news is, but the Lord... That is, God Almighty has laid on Him, capital H, referring to the coming Redeemer that Job was talking about. The Lord has laid on Him all of our sin, all of our iniquity, all of our failings. The Lord God was preparing to lay it on Him. And then we come to the reason for Christmas, what Isaiah was talking about. Chapter 2 of Luke The days were completed for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly afraid. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, today I bring you good news of great joy which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, tis Christ the Lord. Now, in order to be the Savior of mankind, the resume, the qualifications for that role, if you will, for that Savior was absolutely inflexible. And it was precise. The resume for the Savior included four items. First, whoever that one would be, he had to be willing. He had to be willing for what? Willing to be the Savior, meaning what? He had to come being willing to take the punishment for everybody, for the iniquity of all, as Isaiah talked about. He'd be willing to take that punishment upon himself. And we read in John 10 that for this reason the Father loves me, Jesus speaking, because I lay my down life so that I may take it up again. No one's taken it from me. If I can add a few words there, I do it willingly. I lay it down of my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again because this is what I received from my Father. The second qualification on that resume is that He, that Savior, had to be absolutely sin-free Himself. Why? Remember Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the individual who was going to pay the price for everybody else's sin couldn't have their own sin. Otherwise, they'd only be paying for their own personal sin and not everybody else's. Point number three on that resume is that because of point number two, He had to be otherworldly. That is, he had to be supernatural. This is what we read in Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, just as through one man Adam sin entered the world and death because of that sin so that death spread to all men because all sinned so the Savior then could not be born of two human parents like you and I were and like everybody else ever known to mankind has been otherwise he would be disqualified because then he too would again already come into the world sinfully tainted from even before birth if you will not when he sinned but in inherited sin, he was already condemned. And so the Savior could not be of two earthly parents. Which brings us to the fourth point on that resume. On In addition to all of these three, he also had to be fully human. In order to be a fitting substitute for you and me, he had to be fully human and yet, outside of that normal human line of, 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 of genetics so that sin wouldn't touch him. But in order to be a qualified substitute for you and me, he had to be just like us so that he would have to go through the tests, if you will, of living in a sin-tainted world and come through it absolutely sinlessly perfect if he was to be our substitute in giving us that goodness. You say, boy, that's a pickle. Well, yes, it is, but Paul tells us to the Philippians. He says, although Jesus did exist in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God, something to be clung to, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made himself in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he then humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when you consider those requirements of the Savior, there is only one who could possibly satisfy all those requirements. There's only one who could satisfy God's own uh, demand on all of humanity for perfection and absolute holiness. And that is none other than God himself. Well, what of this notion that, well, I, I, I believe in Jesus. Okay. The scriptures say, good start. The devil also believes and trembles. So don't tell me you just believe in Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? Well, I believe he was a good man. No, no. I believe he was a great man. He was a great teacher. He was a great, great, great uh, exemplar of of morality and of integrity and of compassion and love and giving of self. But, But he wasn't God. In fact, it was his disciples that came up with that one, not him. He never claimed to be God. And you're letting your biblical ignorance show. But let's say that that is true. If that is true, that Jesus was all those things, but was not, in fact, God, that's very troubling for you and for me. Because if it is true that Jesus was not God, we all have a big problem with that Jesus. Because Jesus does claim, in fact, over and over again, to be one who is nothing less than God come in the flesh. It wasn't his followers who declared that he must be God. John chapter 8. Interesting little exchanges here. Jesus is speaking. Jesus says to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. And was glad. And so the Jews said to him, Wait a minute. You're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was born, I am. What a strange way to say something. Unless you're God who has no beginning and no end. You are the constant ever now in the present. Not You had a past, a present, and a future. I just am. I am. Now, I love the way the pseudo-Christian scholars come in or the non-theologian scholars come in and they pick that apart and say, well, here's what Jesus meant by that. (laughs) Hogwash. Because the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures and here is the very next line. Therefore, they, who is they... The people there, the people who were fluent in the language, the people who were fluent in the cultural time and in the the, the events that were surrounding Jesus and all of that, what did they say? They picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he was committing blasphemy in claiming to be God. So enough of this pseudo-intellectual nonsense. Again, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Oh, well, of course, you know, like Barbara and I, you know, the two shall become one. We are one in some very legitimate ways. And the liberal theologians go off on that line. Well, yeah, that works. I and the Father are one. What did those who know the language of the day, the culture, and everything else, as I just said, better than anybody else? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Look, I showed you many good works, meaning miracles, from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man make yourself out to be God. So don't tell me that Jesus didn't claim to be God. Finally, John chapter 14, the disciples are with Jesus. They're walking along. Or rather, they're now situated and they're just kind of resting and relaxing. And this is getting now down toward the nitty-gritty. And faith is starting. I mean, they have their own personal issues and questions of faith and who this Jesus really is, those who are closest to him. And so Jesus is there now with them. And Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me there's no other way to interpret that other than nobody goes to heaven except through Jesus Jesus continues Thomas if you had known me you would have known my Father also from now on You do know Him, and you have seen Him. And now Philip chimes in. Philip says to Him, Lord, man, you just always seem to be beating around the bush. Show us the Father. Show us the Father. And that will be enough. Jesus says to him, Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know Me? He who has seen Me, has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And with this statement, Jesus also addresses what is possibly the greatest criticism of Christianity and that is its exclusivity as the way, it's usually the word used, its exclusivity or its, it's exclusiveness. Oh, you Christians, you think you're the only ones that are going to heaven. You would condemn everybody else to hell who doesn't believe the same things that you believe. Well, if you are telling me that everyone in the world who believes in a different system, they say, if you're telling me that everyone in the world who believes in a different religious system, has a different faith faith system, has a different God, or however you want to word it, if you are telling me that everybody else who doesn't believe this is condemned, I won't hear of it. And frankly, I don't have any use or need for that kind of God well I have to say I agree with you what? no I do I absolutely agree that if I were telling you this that you should utterly dismiss me but I am not the one telling you I am not the one telling you the Lord God himself is saying it. Finally, in closing, a, a pretty sad story um, comes out of New Yorker magazine by Sasha Sagan, the daughter of Carl Sagan, and she was interviewed in this. Or no, she wasn't interviewed actually. I believe she wrote this article, and she's talking about her father, and uh, and touches on his faith and all of that. Quoting now from that article by Sasha Sagan. Throughout his career, Carl, my dad, worked as a science popularizer and as a professor of astronomy and critical thinking. He stayed true to his understanding of the world even in tough times, like when me, his little girl, asked him if he would ever get to see his dead parents again. He considered his answer carefully. Finally, he said that there was nothing he would like more in the world than to see his mother and father again, but that he had no reason and no evidence to support the idea of an afterlife, so he couldn't give in to the temptation. Why? Then he told me very tenderly that it can be dangerous to believe things just because you want them to be true. You can get tricked if you don't question yourself and others, especially people in a position of authority. He told me that anything that's truly real can stand up to scrutiny. Indeed, the words of Dr. Sagan are correct. If something is true, it can stand up to intensive scrutiny, as this word has. Unfortunately, the level of biblical ingor- ignorance today—not just popularly, but within the church itself—people are so ready to succumb to the latest individual to come along who has a position of authority with a lot of degrees behind his name and says, "Oh yes, well, you see, what happened here is we've got this grave, grave, con- uh, grave contradiction here in the Old Testament because of <laughs> and Jesus only said Father one and one in unity and they go oh. and so they walk away instead of scrutinizing to see if the things here are real. And so I implore everybody I ever talk to, don't take my word for it, but your eternal destiny hinges on this because there is no just non-existence, as Sagan pretty much, much uh, believed, that we all are just kind of consumed into the, the cosmos, which he, interestingly enough, capitalizes That's his deity. He says of the cosmos, it is the only thing that ever was, ever is, and ever will be. That was his God. And it's bad enough for him, who is now deceased, but to lead your child along the same road. What a bitter pill to wake up in eternity, so to speak. When I believe, I don't know this, it's not from the Bible, when I believe perhaps the greatest Horror amongst everything else of the separation from God will be this, this comprehensive realization of how many opportunities you had to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. And so that is our task. And that is why we invest so much into the little ones here why we invest so much into each other through the many ministries that we've had going on here at the church and why we are moving, moving in greater penetration into the community with a greater zeal and fervency for the truths of this Word, knowing that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life and that anybody we know that doesn't know that will suffer a Christless eternity. And that's not what God desires. It's not what we desire. So if you are in that position today of being the skeptic, of being anything less than fully there by faith, I implore you, for your sake, consider what you have heard today. And if you are curious enough and want a much better presentation of what you just heard, I highly recommend Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Let me have you stand. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me in prayer. And I'm going to ask one simple question. If there is any hesitancy, any doubt in anyone standing here today about their eternal security... And would either at least like to know more, or today would say, yes, I believe this Jesus. I put my faith and trust in Him. Would you just shoot your hand up in the air? Father in heaven, you've seen the step of faith draw these hearts, draw these minds inescapably to you. Give clarity of hearing and of vision and further investigation because, Lord, the more we investigate you, the more we question, the greater our faith becomes when our answers are from your inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word, given that we might know that we have eternal life. Grow these seeds, O God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.